You're listening to the Tune In Talk Podcast, Episode 6, Interview with Slimed Author Matthew Clickstein. Hello and welcome to the Tune In Talk podcast. I am your host, Whitney Grace, and this is your rendezvous for animation interviews. Today's guest is a super cool dude by the name of Matthew Clickstein. And he wrote a book that will be of particular interest to anyone who grew up in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and even today. Because it is a book about the first kids network, Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon is one of the premier networks for children's TV these days. But back when it first started in the 1970s, what they were doing was breaking entirely new ground. Because a network only dedicated for children? Huh. People thought it was pish posh and topsy-turvy and what an outrageous idea. But as you can see nowadays, Nickelodeon set the precedent for children's television. You would not recognize Nickelodeon of yesteryears compared to the flashy, hipster, tween style that is popular today. The 1990s has become what many refer to as the golden age of Nickelodeon due to the amount of original content that they were producing on the network. Much of this is due, in fact, to the blog programmings they had, such as Snick and Nick at Night, but also to a little something called Nicktoons. How many of you remember the great shows such as Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, Rocco's Modern Life, Doug, Ah! Real Monsters, Invader Zim, The Wild Thornberries, The Angry Beavers, and so many more shows that have gone into the nostalgia realm for many of us. What Matt does with Slime is he takes a look at Nick from its inception to some of its modern day happenings. What he did was a very amazing thing is he was able to track down over 250 people who were involved with Nickelodeon in the early days. And we're talking about people who were voice actors, who made some Nicktoons, as well as actors on shows like You Can't Do That on Television, uh, Pete and Pete, Carlissa explains it all, and even some of the background people like directors, producers, hosts like Mark Summers. It is just amazing the amount of work, dedication, and just the amount of people he was able to get to create all of the wonderful information in this book. Well, part of this interview concentrates on the amount of work that went in creating slime and oral history of Nickelodeon. We also spent a good portion of it talking about the history of Nicktoons and its prevalence in Nickelodeon's history. Nicktoons, as you know, are cartoons specifically made for the Nickelodeon network, and while they still continue to be made, they were brand new at that time and a very, very unique idea. Fans old and new are going to enjoy hearing the -the behind-the-scenes stories that Matt has about the early days of Nickelodeon. Now, before we segue into the interview, let's get a little bit of the housekeeping underway. I am actively posting on two social networks right now. I am on Twitter as well as Facebook. You can find me at www. 
twitter.com slash tune and talk as well as www.facebook.com slash tune and talk. What I'll be posting is not only links to the interviews, but also things that I've written personally, such as my column on toughpigs.com called The World of Mother Crap, uh, which is not what you might think it is, but it's a satirical approach to Muppet collectibles. I will also be posting some interviews I have transcribed myself, some book reviews for the lovely animation books I love to collect and read, as well as a project I'm currently working on with the Rotoscopers, which is also a very good news source for you to go to, which is www.rotoscopers.com, run by my friends Morgan, Chelsea, and Mason, who run their own podcast called The Animation Addicts. Gotta check it out. Great people, and they're very, very funny. Um, Also, I have some really cool news. I have gotten my first review on iTunes. Yay! And it is by none other than someone named Tropicana Morgana. Hmm, I wonder who that might be. Tropicana Morgana writes, Tune and Talk is a great show for anyone interested in getting behind-the-scenes scoop about the animation industry, from voice actors and directors to artists and animators. Whitney's able to score some awesome interviews with some of the biggest names in the industry. She does a great job. I can't wait who she interviews next. And Tropicana Morgana gave me five stars, so thank you, Tropicana Morgana. If you want a shout-out on the show, all you have to do is leave a review in iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Hope you rate me some very cool stars. And not only will I give you a shout-out, I'll make you instantly famous by being on the Tune In Talk podcast. So speaking of reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, if you are interested in supporting the show, you can do that in a few ways. One is, of course, by leaving a review in iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Every time you leave one of those reviews, you not only increase the show's awareness on these venues, but it also increases our rank in the number of podcasts. So hopefully one day, we will be at number one. We can all have pipe dreams. So you can also support the show by looking at some of the affiliate links we have on the website. What I'm going to start doing is making some book recommendations that you can purchase through Amazon, and I'll have links to those in the show notes. What I'll also do is I'm going to start reviewing some animation products as well as maybe movies, DVDs. It all depends on what funnels through my channel as well as what I am given to review as well as what I have time for. As you know, I'm currently writing a book about Lotta Reiniger, the pioneer film animator who made the first animated movie ever, arguably, unless you want to bring up that guy in Argentina, but there's no recorded proof, so we won't go into that much more, but time takes up a lot of, but time is short, and there's a lot going on, so while time is ticking away, let's do a time hop back to the 1990s, where SNCC was still a programming block, where Nicktoons ruled the air, and you were cool if you hung out with Stick Stigley in the afternoons, and if you know what Ham Ham Kablam is... My gosh, you're awesome. Everybody, enjoy the Nick nostalgia. On the Lord of Hero, Nick. On the Lord of Hero, Nick. Nick. On the Ricky Dicky Low, while living number one, Nickelodeon. When I first saw your book, it was at the, my local library, and I was like, oh my gosh, 
what is this book with the old Nickelodeon colors? And then I picked it up and read the back. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Somebody has done what I've been trying to research myself for a long time. And the fact that you did it, I am just so pleased. That well, thank you. you. Wrote, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting experience for a lot of reasons, but I definitely have had a lot of people, even friends of mine who have written other books and that kind of thing, say, you know, outright like, oh, I wanted to do this, or I was I was trying to do something like that, and uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I, sometimes it makes you feel a little bit bad actually, and you know, I certainly have had experiences where I've wanted to do a certain book or you know make a movie about a certain subject, and then someone else does, and I get so upset. So I, I do feel for people who wanted to do this, uh, but you know, at the same time, um, I'm glad that I was able to do it, and people seem to be pretty happy. Even the ones, as I said, who they kind of wanted to do something like that themselves. Funnily enough, I before I did that one, I was really planning on uh, doing something about MTV, and then of course the MTV oral history came out about a year before uh, my book, and um, so, but. Uh, you know, I, all I can say is, you know, there's there's always plenty more subjects out there, and I think that there's even plenty more to talk about about with Nickelodeon. Certainly, I even got so much more material that wasn't in the book, uh, so I can I know for a fact there's plenty more stories to tell. And you know, later years, because I was really focusing on the first twenty twenty five years, so I think there's still a lot that can be said and done about Nickelodeon, even you know, in the future. Oh, extremely! You just broken ground in it. Um, like you just said, that there's so much more to write about, but sure. the fact is you did it first. So now other people can use your book as a touchstone of their research and then include it in their bibliography, and then the academic and other research can go from there. So yeah. I do. I do want to note, um, and you know, I make reference to this in the book. There actually, there was one woman who uh, kind of did a book about Nickelodeon before mine. It's called Nickelodeon Nation. Uh, Heather Hendershot did it, and I highly recommend it to anyone who wants more information about Nickelodeon. It's um, it's an academic text. It's so it's a little different than mine. You know, it's not really for a mainstream audience per se. She actually is a professor. In fact, she teaches now at MIT. Um, and a really, really great woman. She's been, she was very encouraging about my project since even years ago when I first brought it to her attention is that I wanted to do a book of my own on Nickelodeon. Um, but, uh, it's a great book because what it literally is, is a, a collection of, of scholarly essays, um, on different aspects of Nickelodeon and different shows and that kind of thing. Um, even Linda Siminski, who was involved in the creation of the original Nicktoons actually writes an article in there. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's certainly a little bit more dry and it's academic. It's, you know, for media classes and that kind of thing. It's almost like a textbook of sorts, but it's a great book that has a lot of information in it. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to do mine had I not had that resource uh, to go to. It really kind of sent me off and I was able to have a lot better idea of what questions to ask the interviewees and uh, even a little bit of who to talk to. So I owe quite a bit to Heather and to the contributors to her book, Nickelodeon Nation. Hope that, uh, you know, people who are interested in this subject can get that book as well. But um, as far as mainstream books are concerned, and certainly oral histories in which I actually talk to everybody, this is definitely the first one. And that's, that's something that, if nothing else, you know, there's good reviews, there's bad reviews. I, it's satisfying to know that this is, you know, the first one, so to speak. And I'm, I do hope that others follow 
Um, and, um, you know, it's already been a big inspiration. So I know people are wanting to do other books like it, or I have a friend who's a bit younger who wants to do a book about a, another TV show uh, and is using mine kind of as a rubric. And, and I think that that's great. So, you know, uh, it makes it all worthwhile, I guess. Well, I think so. I mean, I would take it as a compliment if others started using my book as an inspiration. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice, and, and especially because, you know, I was going back and forth with whether or not I should do it as an oral history or as more of a creative nonfiction like Tom Wolfe. Uh, in fact, originally that was my goal, was to do uh, something more like uh, probably one of my favorite, if not favorite, nonfiction books is a book called Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Azaron, who also did a great biography about Nirvana. But uh, his book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, is about the 80s underground scene, you know, bands like Fugazi and Minor Threat and Sonic Youth, Deep Happening and Butthole Surfers. And I've read that book countless times, and I wanted to do a book like that on Nickelodeon where each chapter would be about a separate show and would be more of a creative nonfiction, almost a novelization, if you will, of the story of each show in somewhat of a chronological order. And that was my original pitch. Uh, and we had a bidding war with a few different companies when they were deciding when we were deciding who was going to publish it. And oh, one company wow. actually did want to do it that way, and Penguin, who ended up uh, ultimately going with, wanted to do the oral history. Uh, I'm not going to lie; part of it was they offered quite a bit more money, but part of it also was I myself am a big fan of oral histories. Also, I love Legs McNeil's "Please Kill Me" and Tom Shales' "Live from New York," um, which is the Saturday Night Live uh, oral history. Um, I'm currently reading that one. Yeah, that one that one's fantastic. And uh, Legs McNeil's Please Kill Me in particular is a big deal book. It's it's pretty much the gold standard. A lot of other people will thank Legs and, and talk about that book and the acknowledgments of other oral histories. So I've always been a fan and I thought that might be a, a more interesting way to do uh the story of Nickelodeon, especially because there's always been so many blogs about Nickelodeon shows and these kind of contentious screeds, if you will, of opinions and these listicles. But it seemed like no one really ever bothered to actually try to interview a lot of these people, aside from certain shows like Pete and Pete and that kind of thing, not reunions yeah. or not. So I thought this was a good chance to finally set the record straight and actually talk to them. Um, and you know, it was it was a great it was a great experience. I even I kind of played with the format of oral history in general. I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, you know, some people complained a little bit that that it should have been each chapter was a different show, but. I just think that would have been really boring and a little too conventional for a book about Nickelodeon. And, you know, I like the way that it is now where it's, it's more thematic and it, the, the changeovers and the transitions are based more on theme and emotion rather than just on the show. Cause that, that I think would have gotten really old and really dull and Nickelodeon deserves something much better than that. Yeah. When you put it that way, um, I mean, it forces you to pay more attention to what you're reading because one minute you're talking about, Hey dude, the next you're talking about Ren and Stimpy and you're like, Oh, who's this and who's this? And I'm when I first read the book, I was like, "Who are all these people?" Because some of them I knew, some of them didn't. And I was like, "Why does any include a who's who in the back, in the front?" Because that's where most of them I, when I read a book, include those. And I was like, "Oh wait, look in the index." And then there it was. So I actually spent about an hour looking some of these people up on the internet, but. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that's, you know, I'm not going to lie, that's obviously something that's come up, and and there's been a little bit of an online debate, I think, um, about that. Um, You know, uh, 
we we certainly had a lot of different ways that we could have done it. You know, some books choose to uh, have parentheticals where they introduce the person um, in the first instance that they're used. Uh, some do it in every instance that they're used. Uh, some have the cast of characters in the front. <laughs> Truthfully, most of them actually have it in the back. Uh, you know, pretty much any oral history I've read, the, the cast of characters, if you will, are in the back, all the way back to even some of the older oral histories, like George Plimpton's about Truman Capote and Edie Sedgwick. The Edie Sedgwick one, by the way, is a great oral history, very interesting. And he, like, like uh, me, and also like, again, Legs McNeil with Please Kill Me and a number of other oral history books, a new one on J.D. Salinger, for example, also chose not to use the parentheticals. Um, in, in my case, it was a number of reasons. One is so many people uh, at Nickelodeon did so many different things that if I had listed every single thing that they did, um, as far as the parenthetical is concerned, some of their li- some of those lines would have just been, you know, three lines of just the parentheticals. I mean, someone like Billy West or Fred Newman, um, or even some of the executives like Mike Klinghoffer or Bob Mintzall, for example, they did so many different things that it really would have been impossible to list every single thing that they did in the parentheticals. And just to say voice actor or to say development person, I think wouldn't have been enough. So that was one reason. It would have been distracting and really annoying to have to like go through all of that. Um, and the other was it's, you know, it's a technical issue as far as word count. Um, I did originally have the parentheticals in there just for myself and for my editors when we were going through things just as like a quick reference because we hadn't put the cast of characters together yet. Um, and I have to tell you, when I took those out, it saved, you know, tens of thousands of words there alone. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, do you want to keep that in there or do you want to take it out so that we can have more of those words saved for actual stories and anecdotes? And I chose the latter. Um, not to mention the fact that every time you might notice, and most people have been able to see this, that when a person is talked about, um, the few little changes I made to people's interviews were things like clarity, as it mentions at the beginning of the book. And I, I think I did a pretty good job of making sure to note what show we were talking about in at least the first one or two or three instances. So when it says Jason Zimbler or Mike Morona or something like that, someone's talking about it, they'll make mention of Pete or Clarissa or whatever it might be. So you kind of start catching on to it. I've even had people who didn't watch the shows or didn't watch Nickelodeon or didn't have it because they didn't have cable, and they've told me that they love the book anyway because really it starts to almost become its own little world, the book, and that's sort of how I put it together in that way. Uh, not to mention, you know, I hate to say it like this, but I assume that people reading a book about Nickelodeon would be a little bit smarter. Uh, fortunately, most of them have been. And, you know, if you're reading Ulysses, it's a little bit of a tough uh, read. You know, you have to kind of, you know, figure it out as you're reading it. Or if you're reading like A Clockwork Orange, for example, it's using a, a made-up language, an ad set. You have to go into the glossary. And yet, at first, it's a little difficult, but then you start getting into it. And heaven forbid you actually learn something while reading the book. Um, so that was sort of what it came down to. You know, I've, 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 I've read some of the, you know, nasty Internet comments and things like that. And I know that some people have been a little bit upset about the fact they didn't uh, use the parentheticals or that the cast of characters was in the back. But, you know, those are the reasons why. Ultimately, it's a style choice. Some people are okay with it. Some people aren't. Um, but that's the way that we did it. I will say I felt a little bit bad about the Kindle edition. Um, from day one, I was telling my publisher that there should be a way that you tap on the person's name and the bio comes up like you would with a word. And um, they said that we couldn't do that. 
And, you know, then all the, you know, some of these comments started coming out where people were complaining that they, you know, especially the Kindle versions, because it's a little harder to go to the back in the Kindle version, apparently. I don't use Kindle, so I don't know. Um, and I, I myself actually got in touch with Amazon and said, hey, is there a way we can do this? They said, sure. I told my publisher. And now they're actually integrating that. And we were supposed to be selling it that way. Then they found out they weren't. Well, I have to tell you, just as a totally separate thing, even with a big publisher like Penguin, and even when you're working specifically with Amazon, it's surprising sometimes to sit there and say, wow, even at this high level, there can still be these little mishaps that happen. So I do apologize to people who are using the Kindle version with it. I guess it is a little harder there. But with the book version, which I recommend anyway, because there's a flip book in there, and it's a great cover that I'm really proud of, et cetera. I want people to support their local bookstores anyway. That it's, you know, that was a style choice. And, you know, again, I, I look to books like Please Kill Me, which is probably the greatest oral history ever written, which did it exactly the same way. And um, certain other oral histories that did it the same way. You know, we could have had it in the beginning. We could have had it in the end. We could have used parentheticals. We could have not. But we chose to do it the way we did. And uh, for the most part, most people seem to like it. And we've gotten great reviews. And we've gotten on some best of lists, you know, Entertainment Weekly and Parade Magazine. So I, I think for the most part, people are fine with it. And, you know, yeah. if it is a little frustrating at first, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, again, all I can say is heaven forbid you actually have to work a little at reading a book or you have to actually learn something as opposed to just like flipping through it. And, so. Okay. Make people learn. That's what I'm for. <laughs> so you interviewed what, 240, 260 people? Yeah, um, you know, the exact number is hard to determine. Um, I really started losing count at a point, um, but it was around 250, um, a number of whom unfortunately didn't make it into the book. As I said, I had quite a lot of material um, that I had that I ended up not using just because, again, you know, the reality of the publishing world right now, you know, word count was an issue. Um, and, um, you know, we also wanted to make it a little bit more accessible. We wanted it to be a fun, easy read. Uh, for the most part. Um, so, uh, you know, I did talk to that number of people. And even at what a lot of people don't know is I actually talked to some people who weren't involved in Nickelodeon, but were involved in other TV shows at the time. I talked to Dustin Diamond, who was Screech, for example, on Saved by the Bell. I talked to Maya Bialik, who was Blossom, about what she thought about Clarissa Explains It All. I talked to people at The Simpsons in South Park about what they thought about Ren and Stimpy and Doug and Rugrats. And that was a lot of fun. We had some great things there, but Unfortunately, you know, I just felt that it was starting to get a little bit too discursive, and again, word count was a, a concern, so I cut all of that out, and unfortunately, I had to cut out some interviews, even with some Nickelodeon people that I would have liked to have kept in, but, you know, it's, again, part of the game. You know, you can't have a 15-hour-long movie. It's got to be two hours, and you can't have a thousand-page book. It's got to be so many pages, and it's just the way that it is. <laughs> How did you track everyone down? That was nearly impossible. <laughs> that was really, really hard. I was actually just talking with a friend of mine. I'm going to give him a little plug here. Uh, John Maycomb, or Maycomb, I might be pronouncing his name incorrectly, but um, he is a, a music and film critic. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, hanging around the Midwest right now, and he does that in Kansas and certain other areas. He came out with a book recently also called The Worst Gig, which is sort of an oral history of different musicians talking about the worst gigs that they ever had. And we were talking about that. And his first question to me was, who were some of the biggest people you talked to? And I said, well, in the Nickelodeon world, at least back in the day, you know, uh, there weren't really too many people who are big names, names you would have heard of, aside from, you know, a select few. Um, but I, I said, 
uh, you know, the big names like Keenan Thompson and Melissa Joan Hart and uh, certainly Mark Summers and like, they were actually the easiest ones to get because I could go to their production offices. You know, you can find that information online or, you know, a lot of them have active Facebook pages or other things like that um, or using other online resources. Uh, so that was actually pretty easy. And most of them, you know, right away wanted to do it because they love talking about Nickelodeon and they never really had a chance to in a way like this before. So the big guys were the easiest ones to get. The smaller people who maybe were only on one show and that was it, you know, that was really difficult. And I can't even tell you how I did that. Some of them I don't even remember. Like Roger Price, for example, who was the creator of You Can't Do That on Television and also created Green Slime. Um, uh, everyone thought I wouldn't be able to get him. He's a, he became a total recluse out in south of France. That was all I knew about him. And everyone was certain. I would not be able to get him. I, I honestly do not remember how I ended up getting him, but I did. I remember getting the email from Roger Price and just being so elated because aside from his having created You Can't Do On Television, as I just said, he created Green Slime. So it's like, oh, if I'm doing a book about Nickelodeon, i got to get him. Um, and I did. So, you know, and other people, it was just, you know, I've always been really good at that. You know, I've, I've been a journalist professionally since I was 15. Um, and I've always just been really, really great at tracking people down. Friends of mine from college will remember my occasionally getting cease and desist letters because I'd be, I'd figure out ways to write to Roman Polanski or different writers and things. And sometimes they were cool about it. And sometimes they weren't so cool about it. You know, I'm, I'm still a fanboy at heart and I kind of learned to sort of temper that a little bit, but you know, I, I just figured it out and you know, every single person was a different hoop to jump through. And that was probably one of the greatest challenges of working on this book was, was, you know, of the 250, I'd say a good 220 or 230 aren't really active in show business anymore and are just, you know, regular people, if you will, who I had to just track down. You know, some of them, Ellen, the girl who played Ellen, I should say woman who played Ellen on Pete and Pete, Allison Finelli, she was so off the grid uh, for the most part that when they did the first Pete and Pete reunion, uh, they weren't even able to get in touch with her. In fact, the way she found out about the second one was her brother uh, had been told by someone else that they were doing it. And she actually had to get in contact with them because they couldn't track her down. And uh, there was a lot of, there were a lot of people where, you know, I just had to figure out ways of doing it. You know, another, you can't do that in television guy was Alistair Gillis. And none of us could find Alistair. I was really trying hard to track him down. No idea where he was. Someone mentioned to me that there was someone in Canada mentioned to me that they saw a video from a few years ago of this band playing at a bar. One of the guys kind of looked like what Alistair would have looked like if he were older. I don't even know how they found the video. So I tracked the bar down. I called the bar all the way into Canada to ask them if they happened and, you know, if that was Alistair Gillis in the band. They said, actually, it was, and he plays there sometimes with his brother. They got me in touch with his brother. His brother <laughs> sent my information to Alistair. Alistair was nice enough to hit me back up. And then we ended up chatting and, and everything was great. And, you know, imagine having to basically do that about 200 times over um, and in a very short amount of time. Also, uh, I had a very, very short deadline. So it was it was quite uh, difficult. And what's funny is now today, because so many of them are still relatively off the grid, I'm getting calls and emails all the time from Fox and from IMDb even and different magazines. Saying, hey, could you help us track someone so down? We can't, we can't find them. And, you know, I just sit there laughing that these editors of these big magazines and producers for these big shows, you know, aren't even able to do what I did, you know, 200 times over. So that was something that I was really proud of that I was able to do. And I just, it was really important for me to make sure to get every single person 
Uh, and we pretty much did get everyone. There, were, there was a very small number, like maybe two or three people that we didn't get. And ultimately, there were people that I didn't you know, end up working as hard for. The only two that I really would have wanted to get that I was a little disappointed about were um, Arlene Klasky, who was one of the creators of Rugrats, and she just didn't want to talk about Rugrats or old-school Rugrats. We even had Jerry Laybourne, the old president of Nickelodeon, contact her personally for us, and she still said no. Um, and Alanis Morissette, I think, would have been fun for You Can't Do That on television, even though we got a lot of people to talk about her in the book. And A friend of mine has a friend who even used to date her, and he tried to get in touch with her. Unfortunately, her album, her new album had just dropped right when we started the whole process, and she was traveling so much all over the world. And we were dealing with her management team, and they were great, and they were really trying to help us out, but they hardly knew where she was half the time. So that, that was the big problem there. Was she was just she was in God knows where when we were doing the interview process. So those were the only two that I really wish I could have gotten that I didn't get. And you know, I pretty much got everyone else though. So well, congratulations. And I mean, I know how hard it is to track people down. And I, <laughs> from my perspective, even with my podcast, uh, I mean. I try to take more of a historical perspective for some of the episodes, and so I'm looking for some of these people, and I'm like, hmm, am I going to be able to find the original voice of Bambi? And I'm like, he's 80-something years old. And yeah. I tried finding him, and I was like, yeah, I can't find him. <laughs> no, it, it can be tough, like someone like that, you know, and especially we, you know, we were even trying, I really want to get to, you know, even some of the lower levels. I mean, we tracked down people who were craftsmen and craftswomen on, you know, original Double Dare sets, and you know, the choreographer for Roundhouse and, you know, people who are, who are um, you know, some of the lower totem poles of some of these shows even. And, you know, originally, my original vision when I did decide to do an oral history was I actually wanted to try to get, like, every single person from every single show. I thought I was going to have, you know, five or 600 interviews um, and, you know, like the grips and the PAs and I wanted to get everybody in there. Um, but when, you know, we discussed the word count and the deadline certainly – I realized that that just would have been impractical. And I think ultimately it would have not been as great for the book. I, I think that it's good that we really focused on the actors, the producers, the writers, mm -hmm. and when appropriate, you know, we didn't talk to the, you know, the choreographer for Roundhouse was, I think, important because that show was very dance-based as well as, you know, um, being comedy and that kind of thing. And certain shows I talked to the sound people or the craftsmen and craftswomen, like I said, you know, on Double Bear, I think that that's important. I don't necessarily know if you had to talk to all the every single one of the art directors or whatever for some of the other shows where it wasn't quite as significant. So we really had to kind of pick and choose. And as I said, some of them I did talk to, and just we ended up not being able to put them into the book. Um, yeah. I talked to a whole bunch more people from even some of the earlier shows like Mr. Wizard's World and um, Out of Control um, and that kind of thing. But you know, and Welcome Freshmen. But those were shows that just weren't as well remembered as Pete and Peter, Ren and Stimpy, and you know. Um, I felt that it was important to really focus on the shows that people remembered a little bit better and that were talked about a little bit more and that kind of thing. But, you know, there's still stuff in there about Mr. Wizard and Out of Control and Welcome Freshmen. So, um, yeah. yeah. I actually went to, remember Robin from Double Dare? Of course. She, my uncle actually went to school with her. Oh, isn't that funny? She, yeah, she had a, I don't, I don't even remember now what actually made it into the book or what didn't, but she told us a funny story about um, one of her children's teachers was actually a contestant on Double Dare. And I that's know. Just wild. <laughs> so, it's all six degrees of separation, you know. Yeah, I know that's that's really pretty crazy when that kind of thing can happen. So, uh, but you know, and, and that was great too, just to get even a lot of the intimate moments like that, some of the more personal 
anecdotes. That's why also I thought that it was great to do an oral history because that allowed for that as opposed to something that was a little bit more just straight historical, mm-hmm. you know, even, you know, injecting some of my own style and tone in there and making it a little less dry still to do it as an oral history. You know, the whole entire time I saw it much more like a documentary, which is something that I'm used to doing. I've, I've done some short and feature length documentaries in the past. And it really was like producing a documentary. I had to, you know, figure out who to talk to. I had to track them down. I had to interview them. I had to get the interviews transcribed. I had to work on the transcriptions edit it together much like you would edit a film and now you know i'm in the process of promoting it and marketing it and that kind of thing and working with my publisher and my publicist and that kind of thing on that so it was much more in the end like producing a documentary than it was like writing a book uh which was uh you know kind of an interesting little spin on it also so i'm hoping the next book can be you know more of my actual text and prose uh, I think this will probably be the one oral history I do, but you never know. I, I've had some ideas for some other oral histories. It would be fun to do like a authorized one of the Simpsons. Um, and, you know, at a point I was thinking about doing Ghostbusters and you know, a few <laughs> others like that. So um, you never know. But for now, I, I prefer to do prose <laughs> for the next book. Animation was really big from Nickelodeon from the start, but most cartoons that they did from the beginning were ones that some of them were dubbed anime, a few others came from Europe. Nothing original. Um, Say again? Nothing really original until they got to create the Nicktoons. Right, yeah. From your, from your experience talking to the people behind the original Nicktoons, why did Nick decide to create their own cartoons? That's a really good question, um, something I wish we could have talked about a little bit more in the book, um, but um, there were a couple of reasons. One is, uh, as you were just saying, you know, the first cartoons of Nickelodeon were licensed. Uh, they were made by other people, and Nickelodeon basically bought the rights to show them and distribute them on uh, the channel. Um, shows like, uh, you know, Count Duckula and Danger Mouse, um, and obviously, you know, bigger shows like Looney Tunes. Um, what some people don't remember or even know, it, though, is when Looney Tunes was airing on Nickelodeon, um, it was a really low point for uh, for the for the show, and even for what Warner Brothers was doing with the show. Uh, Nickelodeon kind of single-handedly made Looney Tunes cool again, um, and the first uh, the first uh, tranche of uh, of uh, shows that they were able to show was uh, basically three years worth. So they had three years worth of Looney Tunes. And Scott Webb, who was the um, creative director of Nickelodeon at the time and ran something called the On-Air Promotions Department, which basically they were responsible for all those really cool, memorable little bumpers that we all remember where they, oh, yeah. they did all this stuff with, like, you know, Mr. Ed and Lassie. And they were doing, like, you know, they had Looney Tunes, like, rapping and that kind of thing. They were the ones doing that. And a lot of people came from his department, like Will McRobb and Chris Discardi, who would also go on to create Ventures of Pete and Pete. Um, it was sort of like the mini show creator, like incubator, if you will. Anyway, so they, by the way that they promoted Looney Tunes and just the fact they were showing it so much on Nickelodeon and that they were, um, you know, really upping the ante with Looney Tunes again, when they went back to Warner Brothers three years later to renegotiate the new contract, Warner Brothers literally came to them and said, well, you know, Looney Tunes is doing really great now. Everyone's talking about Looney Tunes again. Looney Tunes are, you know, really big now and, and, and just like it used to be and that kind of thing. And Nickelodeon goes, well, you're welcome. And Warner Brothers basically says, uh, well, yeah, and we also now want three times as much as what, we off- as what you offered before. And Nickelodeon kind of backed away and said, whoa, three times as much, that, that's a lot more money for the next, um, for the next sale. 
And so they kind of were trying to figure that out. At the same time, something was going on with the FCC on a government level. The FCC actually came in. This is partly why there was such a renaissance of great cartoons and movies and things like that in the late 80s, early 90s, even outside of Nickelodeon, with shows like The Simpsons and things like that. The FCC actually stepped in at a point and said, okay, no more 30-minute long toy car- uh, toy commercials. All this, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and He-Man and My Little Pony, like, you know, you guys have to actually make quality cartoons now. You can't do this anymore. You can't make these crappy, poorly written, poorly animated, basically, toy commercials for kids anymore. They actually stepped in and said that on a legal level. So um, Nickelodeon had that going on also. And on top of all of that, um, the government also allowed networks to uh, not just show but produce uh, their own cartoons for the first time. And so they di- they were allowed to not just license, but they can actually produce and own and distribute their own cartoons also. So all three of those things were happening all at the same time. So it was a legal issue, and it was also a financial issue. And, you know, to add to that mix, it was just the people who were involved in Nickelodeon at the time, like Jerry Laybourne, who was the president, and, you know, people like Scott Webb and Fred Seibert and Alan Goodman and some of the other people, Jeffrey Darby, who were involved. They loved, They were like Steve Jobs type people. They loved creating their own material because then they can control it. It was theirs, and it would be a Nickelodeon type of a show. You know, Nickelodeon had its own brand, its own sensibility by that point, late 80s, early 90s, and they wanted cartoons infused with that, you know, bright orange and, and green, uh, you know, coloring, if you will. And so all of that came together, and they basically brought on Vanessa Coffey, who had been doing a few little projects for them kind of on the side just to sort of test the waters a little bit and said, all right, go and find us some animators, go and find us some cartoons. And that's what she did. And that's basically how Nicktoons happened. <laughs> so the original three trick Nicktoons were Doug, Rugrats, and Ren and Stimpy. Correct. How did they find these guys to made these up? Was it all in-house or did they like... No, it was not in it was all subcontracted. That was what was so great about Nicktoons. And they, they were doing this with a lot of the live action shows, too. You know, a lot of people forget that Nick Studios Florida didn't really happen until the early 90s. And so there was a good 10 years or so of even Jerry Laybourne's. I mean, Nickelodeon started in 1979. The first couple of years were sort of, you know, a pass because they were doing something a little different. They were trying to create sort of a sort of a PBS type of uh, thing for kids. Yeah. Uh, so that was a little bit different. It was in 83 that Jerry Laybourne uh, becomes president, and she really turns Nickelodeon into what we love and know of it during that era between the you know mid-80s and mid-90s. Um, and so uh, by the time um, you know they got to wanting to do Nicktoons, um, basically they uh, they well, wanted to just go to uh, creators of cartoons. And this is where they came up with the term creator-driven cartoons or creator-driven animation, which Nickelodeon still uses that term today, even though it's not necessarily as true as it once was. <laughs> but basically, and, and this is what's kind of fun about it and how Nickelodeon during this era was a little bit DIY, a little bit punk, and a little bit grunge or yeah. alternative, if you will. They literally were going to people's garages. They were going to people's home studios. They were basically just going out there, and their whole goal was, let's find those angry, frustrated, you know, upset young animators who have been toiling away in the basement on their dream projects, 
and maybe they've been doing some stuff for, you know, Tiny Toons or some of these other big shows that are out there right now. And let's see what they actually want to do. Let's go back to the animators. Let's go back to the artists and ask them, what's the project you've been wanting to do? And that's what they did. And originally they actually found um, the number changes a lot, but I know for a fact it was at least six shows that they were going to yeah. do and that they were, they were working on. Uh, there were a couple of other shows that they actually developed pilots for, mini pilots for at least, that ended up not happening. Um, but they really just, you know, they basically found John Chris Felucci of Ren and Stimpy, and they found Jim Jenkins of Doug, and they found um, Gabor and Arlene and Paul Germain from Rugrats. And, you know, they put out ads in papers, and they basically said, show us what you got. And that's what they oh, did. They kind of still do something similar these days. Um, they have, like, a yearly contest where you can submit a cartoon idea, and then they have, like, a writer's workshop. Um, I mean, it's probably not as, you know, free where you... <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell you, I know for a fact, and, and one of the women who's kind of running that um, was involved in the creation of the original Nicktoons, um, and she was in our book. She's actually one of the only people who was still involved in Nickelodeon that we talked to. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've remained friendly with her, as I have with most of the people I interviewed, but... Through her, I actually had a friend who's an animator who went and pitched something over there. And, uh, you know, I feel it's important to note, you know, that, that basically, you know, it was a great idea. It was very funny. I actually helped him a little bit with some of the ideas for the show and that kind of thing. He's an amazing animator who's, you know, made his career that way. Um, and it's done, you know, cartoons and commercials and all different kinds of things. Um, and, you know, they basically turned it down because they pretty much said outright, we want another SpongeBob. We want two quirky characters who are friends that are going on adventures. And that was not what my friend's show was. And I think that that's a shame. And, you know, it's great they are trying to do this sort of contest thing, if you will, or the workshop and that sort of deal. It sounded like it could have been a great, you know, uh, type of way of doing things, both for them and for the animators and also for the audience. But the problem is, and this is really one of the issues with Nickelodeon overall right now, is it still is them just kind of trying to do the same thing that they've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. In the last 10 or 15 years... Uh, and they're also copying Disney. Right, right, exactly. Well, that's part of what they've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years, and we talk about that a lot in the book, too, at the last yeah. chapter. Um, I, you know, I think I did a good job of allowing people to explain why they did that and why that kind of makes sense on a financial level, even though the last few years, even that hasn't necessarily been true for Nickelodeon. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I know that they're still kind of trying to innovate and kind of trying to get new material out there and working with the animators and doing creative driven animation, but it really is not like it was at one point, yeah. you know, when it was Vanessa Coffey running the show and, and people like John Chris, you know, there will never be another John Chris Felucci running a cartoon show at Nickelodeon, unfortunately, probably anywhere because everyone learned the lesson of what happens when you work with someone like him. He's, you know, an amazing animator. Many people feel that he's the best living, you know, cartoon creator, you know, right now. And he works with all these other musicians and things and everyone loves his work. He's a little difficult to work with. I had a great experience working with him, frankly, and he's been really nice even after the books come out, you know, helping to promote it and that kind of thing in different small ways. But there's never going to be a show like Ren and Stimpy again on Nickelodeon and probably not anywhere on television at all. Mm -mm. You know, might be stuff like that on, mm -hmm. online or whatnot, but... Yeah. Well, maybe online on YouTube, but... Yeah, that doesn't really count, though, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned Ren and Stimpy. Um, yeah. Personally, 
I was never a big fan of it because I like to call it a very raw humor and very gross humor. I never really yeah. liked that. Love Doug and Re- love Doug and Rugrats, but um, I've also heard in your book, and I read it in your book, that there was some discrepancies about the production of the show, and there was a big hoo ha about it. Yeah. Tell me two things. A, why do you think people like this cartoon so much, and what happened to Ren and Stimpy? Those are two very, very vast questions. They're, they're small questions, but vast answers. Um, I'll do the best I can. Obviously, as you can tell already, and your listeners too, I'm, I'm quite long-winded, but I'll try to keep it as concise as possible. Um, I think that people like the show so much because it was so different. It was, um, you know, I've referred to it before as my favorite band right now and has been for a few years, which is the Brian Jonestown Massacre. They made a great documentary about that also a few years ago. My friend Andy made called Dig. And um, in it, someone refers to that band as, you know, reinventing the past for the future or something along those lines. And I feel that's what they did with Ren and Stimpy, and we talk about that a little in the book. Um, It was very different. It was very unique. But it also, at the same time, was extremely steeped in... Uh, animation history. And what was so amazing about Ren and Stimpy is he was able to walk so many different lines and, you know, really conflate different worlds where he was able to conflate animation of the future and indeed what animation would look like. Let's face facts, almost everything that's been on Cartoon Network and other shows like that since Ren and Stimpy looks like Ren and Stimpy in some regard. The lines and the color schemes and, you know, the kind of music that they use, the sound effects. Um, you know, you can really see that all animation after Ren and Stimpy would owe a lot to Ren and Stimpy, so they were creating the animation of the future. But at the same time, they were also pulling from a lot of animation from the past. And, you know, John himself has said a lot that he's pulling a lot from people like Bob Clampett and obviously Tex Avery and some of these others. And so he was able to bring those two worlds together. So both, like, academics who knew a lot about animation could watch the show and enjoy it because they're like, oh, that's so postmodern. Whereas, you know, they and and other people could say, wow, this is also very different. You know, so too with the way that he used the transgenerational aspect where kids could enjoy it because it's these funny animals talking, but also adults could enjoy it and college stoners, if you will, and others, because, yeah, it was very gritty. It was dark in points. It was, you know, a lot of scatological humor, but still often in a relatively smart way. Um, They brought in a lot of cultural references that, you know, older people would get. Um, Nickelodeon itself didn't really know what to do with it at a point because it was both for kids and adults at the same time, which was kind of their thing. That was kind of what made those shows so great and successful and why we can look back on Ren and Stimpy or Pete and Pete, certain other shows, and enjoy them even today, not just as nostalgic kitsch. They actually were for adults and kids at the same time. So I think that's a big reason. Not to mention just the visceral aspect of it. It is funny. And, yeah, the humor is not for everybody. Um but, you know, it's true of anything. But I think that the people who do like it, like it because it's laugh-out-loud funny. Um, and, you know, there's also, you know, inside of that even, there's the relationship, the very true, sincere relationship between Ren and Stimpy. I mean, it starts in the very first episode uh, with um, Ren, you know, being taken away from the pound. He's going to be put to sleep as a Stimpy if they're not rescued. And Ren's taken away, and he says, no, I'm not going to leave without Stimpy. And that was something that, 
um, you know, they really worked to keep alive was the relationship between Ren and Stimpy. As violent as it could be, as S&M as it could be, as disgusting as it could be, there was at heart, though, this relationship between these two characters. And that's what a lot of people, I think, really connected with. They were good friends with each other. They loved each other. John, unfortunately, took that a little too far with the adult version of it that was on Spike TV, everyone agrees, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> what happened with Ren and Stimby? Again, an entire book could be written about that. That's actually how that chapter starts. And so to keep it as concise as possible, too late, um, basically the show was taken away from the creator, John Chris Lucy, because of a myriad of reasons, and that's the truth. It really was not one reason. Basically, he and the people running Nickelodeon just couldn't get along the only reason that he was even able to do it as long as he did or that he was able to do the show at all. And they were aware of his reputation. He had a, a pretty nasty reputation before he even got to Nickelodeon. Everyone knew that he was an infant terrible, if you will, that he was someone who was a bit of a nasty young person who fought with people and, and scared his employees and so forth. But they also knew that he was a genius and, and, again, quite possibly the best person doing what he does who's alive right now and has been for the last 30 years. Um, so, uh, that is why, you know, he's, he was able to do the show, why they kept him on. But ultimately there were just so many different things. It's not even worth getting into here. Read the book. Um, and you know, you can find out as much as you want online, even as far as, uh, it just didn't work out between, uh, John and the people running the Nickelodeon and Nicktoons. And they ultimately took it away from him and they ultimately gave it to, um, one of his, uh, uh, people who helped him to develop the show, and it was at one point a very good friend of his and collaborator, Bob Camp. Um, yeah. And then Bob Camp took it over, and that created a schism within the group um, because it was basically an independent contractor. So it was basically this little studio of artists who were working for Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon was still in New York at the time. You know, Spunko, John Spunko was in L.A., so they were on the other side of the country. And Nick would send story editors out like Will McRobb, and uh, Mitchell Kriegman and others would come, go by and make sure everything's going okay. But at the end of the day, it was up to John. He was in charge, and they just they couldn't rely on him anymore for various reasons. So they gave the show to Bob. They took John off of it, and a lot of the crew and, and people who were involved in Ren and Stimpy left with, with John when John left. And, so, and it's still to this day, 20 years later, there's still a lot of ire. I mean, there were a lot of people who almost didn't want to talk to me and that kind of thing. And there were others who loved talking about it because they loved bashing each other at the same <laughs> time. So it was a little bit of both. Um, but I know that John goes back and forth with whether he really wants to talk about it or not. You know, there was even another guy uh, who wrote a book about Red and Stimpy for a really small trade publication and uh, trade press, and he wasn't able to get John to talk to him. Um, so and John was another person a lot of people thought I wouldn't be able to get because he did still hold so much anger about that as do pretty much everyone who was involved in that show. Uh, but they can all agree. Um, John and Bob alike, they might hate each other with a fervent passion. I've met Bob now a few times even in person. Yeah. But um, they, uh, they all can agree that they were doing something really, really special. Uh, Ren and Stimpy was the first and last time, I think, that animation – um, would be given that much freedom and have that much liberation and be able to just be this artist medium that they can do whatever the heck that they wanted. Um, and there were other things at that time, like the early Simpsons and, you know, who framed Roger rabbit, and even a little bit of what Disney was doing with the lion King and mm -hmm. little mermaid. And later on, you know, some of the early Pixar movies, of course, but you know, I don't, I don't think we're ever going to see material like Ren and Stimpy again. 
And unfortunately, I don't even think we're going to see material like Finding Nemo again, you know, especially now that Steve Jobs is dead. Um, and there's not going to be someone there really pushing for the best that they can do and the most out there stuff they can do and stuff that's for everybody. You really need someone like John Chris Felucci or someone like Steve Jobs on board, you know, wrapping people's wrists with the ruler, saying, no, better, no, more, no, wilder, no, you know, make it smarter. And with those people gone, you know, I unfortunately don't think that we're going to see Finding Nemo again or Ren and Stimpy again or, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit again. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate there. In a way, um, I, I mean, I've heard this many times, is you don't want to repeat the same successes, is you want to have something that's totally original and that takes you in a whole new thought pattern. So do we want to see Funny Nemo again? No. Do we want to see Renaissance again? No. Do we want to see something new and original that's nothing we've ever seen before? Totally. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. And in fact, you know, funnily enough, when people have asked me, um, you know, about the book in the past, I've said a few times that I almost feel a little bit bad that I did the book at all um, because I don't want people to repeat, uh, you know, and, and uh, on one level, there definitely is a blueprint, you know, within the pages of that book. Uh, you know, if you read it correctly and you're one of the people who can read it, despite it not having the parentheticals or the cast characters in the back, if you're able to have abstract thinking going on, <laughs> that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the blueprints for how to create successful television shows for everyone is right there um, within the pages of that book. But at the same time, yeah, I kind of, you know, I don't want people to repeat that at the same time. So that is a little bit difficult. Some of this stuff should be more, you know, ephemeral and more ineffable, if you will, where it's something that you kind of know in your heart and soul and mind, but you can't actually put it down on paper. And, you know, that's why it's great that Mark Summers, who was nice enough to do the forward for the book, he basically says that in the forward, that you can't, you know, deconstructing a Nickelodeon or a good television show is like deconstructing a good joke. You really can't. It's just it either is funny or it's not. And I think so, too, with these kinds of movies and shows that we're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't want to see another Ren and Stimpy, and I wouldn't want to see another Finding Nemo. What I'm saying, though, is that the, um, the, uh, the structure, if you will, and what allowed Ren and Stimpy to happen and what allowed Finding Nemo to happen and having these incredibly iconoclastic and incredibly uh, inimitable people like Steve Jobs and John Chris Felucci involved um, is something that I think would be important to, you know, creating another show or another movie like that. And I can tell you both from having worked in film and television for many years and writing about film and television for many years that, you know, they kind of, the system, if you will, capital S, it does exist. And they kind of are, they learn, they're like the board from Star Trek. They learn, you know, very well and they create new laws and they create new rules and they create new yeah. precedents to deal with the John Chris Felucci of the world and the Steve Jobs of the world so that that can't happen again. And I'll wrap this really quick little screed up with, I was just again talking with a friend of mine who wrote uh, The Worst Gig uh, yesterday. Um, actually, another person, I'm sorry, another pretty big deal TV guy who's been in the business for years about, you know, the films of the 70s, the American movies of the 70s. And the way that we were able to get movies like Easy Rider and Nashville and um, uh, Harold and Maude and Clockwork Orange and some of these great films from the late 60s and 70s, and they were made by companies like Paramount and Warner Brothers and Universal, 
um, is because it, there was a point where people running the show, like Robert Evans, were saying, you make great films. I trust you. Here's a bunch of money. Go make it. Everyone will love it. We'll get a bunch of rewards. And there we go. And that's just not how it works anymore. The people running the show are very different kinds of people than Robert Evans. And it's a shame. And that's just the way that it is. And again, the system has kind of learned how to keep people like Robert Evans or Chris Lucy or Steve Jobs out of the equation. There will always be someone who will break through. That's the way that these cycles work. But I just, I, I don't know. I'm a lot more cynical about it. So we'll see. And unfortunately, well, yeah, you will see a lot of this stuff online, but I'm here to tell you that, you know, that that's not reality and you can't make money doing anything online and, and, uh, you know, and that's going to also really create a smaller field from which people are creating things. You know, it'll be if they are making these really well-produced things or whatnot, people can spend a lot of money and time on it and probably don't have to worry about money, so to speak. And, you know, you're still not making a lot from that and you're not able to get the resources you need for that. And, you know, I, I, I still have a lot of doubts about, you know, the next big wave coming from the Internet. And I think I still very much feel that the only people who make money from the Internet are Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Brin and, the people who are actually running the show, which is why people like Tom York and Trent Reznor and some of the others who want to break off and do stuff on the internet have gone, have all gone back to the labels and are basically saying, well, the labels suck too, but at least we can pay our bills by working with them on the online. There's no money going anywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. That's why. (laughs) You get low there, but no, 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 it's fine. It's just one, one day. I kind of feel the same way with the internet that, I mean, I myself, I just sort of, I finished my, I finished this draft for my first graphic novel. I'm working on some ideas for some little TV series. I can probably promote Amazon YouTube myself, but my hope is to eventually just be putting that stuff on with a network or something so that I can actually make some money from it. Yeah, and you know, the thing that people forget, it's not just a selfish thing, and this is something that sometimes disappoints me. You know, I, I love South Park, or at least I did, and, you know, certain other, you know, books and shows and movies where they kind of make fun of what we're talking about right now, and, oh, you know, if you really love it, you'll do it, and, you know, and don't worry about the money and that kind of thing. But what people forget is you need sometimes that money even to create what you're doing. You know, there's only so much that you and your friends can do, A, in your spare time when you're not, you know, working your full-time job or two or three to pay the bills, um, you know, especially since we all have our student loans to pay off and everything else right now, medical insurance and so forth. Um, but also you need it even just to, like, I wouldn't have been able to do the Nickelodeon book if I had done it as an Amazon book or it's self-published or something like that. You know, there's no way. I needed an advance. I needed to be able to work on it full-time for a very long period of time. I needed to be able to pay people to help me transcribe you know, the interviews, or I wouldn't have been able to make my deadline or gotten it done at all, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd still be transcribing the interviews if I hadn't had four or five people help me out with that. And I needed to pay. They were friends. They were good friends. I needed to pay them. They were doing work for me and taking time off from the schedule to do that. And so you need that money to even to travel and go and interview people. And you have to have that in order to do, you know, these different kinds of projects 99% of the time. So, you know, to just say, oh, you can just make something and put it online, and if it's good, people will like it, and you'll get money, that's not reality. That's reality for a very small segment of our population mm-hmm. that doesn't really have to worry about rent or student loans or 
I hate hearing people say, oh, I made my movie for $50,000. That's really not true because in the two years that you spent making your movie, you weren't paying rent and you weren't paying for gas and things like that. And, you know, the, the two years after that, that you went to the festivals, which is not free, uh, even if you get into them and, the, you know, and promoting and everything, you know, you needed to be paying the bills and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, plus not to mention all the post-production you have to do to actually make it watchable in theaters and on television. I mean, it just, there's a myth that's been created, unfortunately, since the mid-90s that, you know, it costs a lot less and it's a lot easier to make TV and film and books and things than it really is. And it's unfortunately been created by a very rich portion of the segment, uh, a very rich segment of the population. This is a whole other thing, but I just, you know, I just feel very strongly about it. And it's very frustrating for me. And it sounds like for you and for other friends of mine who are musicians and filmmakers and writers and people who have done stuff, people who have been there, people who know. Um, these are not yeah. just frustrated young people who are like, oh, I wish I could do it. Like, no, they've done it a few times, some of them, and they still, you know, you got to pay your rent. That's what it comes mm-hmm. down to. You can't just make art for art's sake. That's for very, very wealthy people who are living in a fantasy world. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why I want, uh, I just said that, I, well, that's why I want to get attached to a big publisher because, A, yeah. they help. It helps. No, and you, you got to have it. with it. <laughs> Yeah, you, you got to have it, and I, you know, I do. I don't know how much of this will actually make it to the actual podcast, or how many people are still listening at this point. But um, let me just throw this out there. You know, as someone who's been, you know, gone through the gauntlet a few times now, and I've worked with smaller publishers too, and and I have friends, you know, all over the the map who have done big things and small things and whatnot. Go with a publisher. Don't be fooled into going with Amazon. Don't be fooled into doing these self-published, you know, schemes and scams and pyramid schemes. You know, don't be fooled into making material just for YouTube or whatnot. You know, it's all, it really is a lie, and it really is kind of sick, and there's plenty of information out there. Read some of these things that people like Tom York and Trent Reznor have said who are so against um, working with the labels and said, oh, the Internet's the future, and, you know, we could put our music out there and people will pay for it. And, uh, and they basically say, look, at the end of the day, you know, you, you just have to choose. Do you want your money to go to AOL or Google, or do you want your money to go to Columbia Records? So, um, you know, and that's I, I feel like that's so important. If anyone gets anything from this, uh, from this podcast right now, it's that, which is, you know, go with um, your, yeah, go with your... Uh, Publisher, <laughs> go with a publisher. Yeah, I can You know, I had significant problems with my publisher, and they're aware of it, and I'm aware of it, and I have friends that have worked with them too. But it, I wouldn't have done it any other way. And my editor ultimately was amazing. My publicist ultimately was amazing. You know, I wouldn't have been able to get any of that without an agent who, yes, takes a percentage, but they're able to do the things for you that in this day and age you just can't do on your own, some of it legally. You know, you can't just send your stuff out there. You have to have an agent, and yet you just, this is the way that it's done. And, you Mm -hmm. know, you can either understand that, especially when you're first getting started, or you can play this silly fantasy game where, oh, I'll put it online or this or that, or, oh, there's people doing these online comics or making money. And they're they're really not. Yeah, most of them are (laughs) very wealthy young people who don't have to worry about money. And it's a it's a separate thing. It's it's just a separate part of the population. And so, you know, it's really important that we keep reminding young artists, stay within the establishment. You know, it's probably the most revolutionary thing you can do. <laughs> you know, is it's it's almost more conservative now and more and less yeah. progressive to put it online. You know what I mean? Like, stay. You know, do your crazy, wacky, wild, interesting stuff, but do it for the larger publishers. Do it for the networks. Yeah, they need it. We need it. 
get it out and, there. <laughs> and you can also do stuff online to help promote your projects. I mean, that's the good thing about the Internet. You can do many things to catch, draw attention to yourself sure. and then make yourself look better to these people. I mean, that's really what you have to use the Internet for. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think you just hit the nail on the head. Use the Internet. Don't be used by the Internet. And that's really a lot of what it comes down to and what's really important. I think too many people, there's one person, I just as a great example, and it keeps coming up in my head, and I've known a few people that have tried working with him. He's a very big deal guy. He's created shows that all of your listeners and you have heard of um, and has been involved in much of the development of television as we know it. Um, and you know, his, his method for trying to get new material out there is basically, you know, make a bunch of, of, of episodes of your show, put it on YouTube and, you know, hopefully someone will catch it. And when they do talk to him and he will work with you and getting all the deals and that kind of thing. And as much as that seems a little bit like a scheme or a scam, you know, it's, it's how he is kind of working right now. And, you know, people in the know are aware that that's kind of bullshit. And I had a friend even she met with him and was like, came back and said, he wanted me to make 52 episodes of my show and release one every week. And even if each episode is only five minutes or whatever, it's a lot of money and it's a lot of time. And you have at least two or three, if not five or 10 crew members who are taking time off from their jobs or whatever it is. I mean, people's time is worth money and you have to pay them for that. You know, otherwise they're not going to be reliable or they're going to be lazy or you're kind of exploiting them in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the fact that that kind of thing is even going on is sort of silly. So, um, I, uh, so, you know, you just, and he even kind of knows, you know, at the end of the day that it's a little bit silly and it's like, come on, why, if, if I could make 52 episodes, even five minutes each of the show, I wouldn't need you type of thing. I wouldn't need you to. So it's, it's really silly. And, um, you know, again, to bring this actually back to what we were talking about, um, you know, that's, I think, why Big Tunes was so amazing in its early days is because mm-hmm. it was one of those times like American film in the 70s where the big guys, you know, Nickelodeon was still kind of small at the time, but the big guys, mm-hmm. quote unquote, were going to young artists and saying, give us what you've got. And we're not just going to make it, you know, we're going to work with you on it. We're going to put it on, on our on air and we're going to make it the biggest thing that we can make it. And they were very successful at that with Ryan Quimby and a few years down the line, drug rats, some drug rats really hit hard. And, you know, Doug never really happened at Nickelodeon, unfortunately. That was more to me. Um, no, I mean, I love Doug. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying, you know, as far as yeah. financially is concerned. Okay. Doug, Doug didn't do that well on Nickelodeon, unfortunately. It was the one Nick tune that actually didn't even go through its entire five seasons. They canceled it first. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, which, which is why Jim went over to Disney and Disney blew it up in a way that was awesome. And, yeah. you know, he can even admit, you know, there's that, that dichotomy again where it wasn't as good at Disney. I think we can all agree on that. And I know yeah. Jim himself and uh, Connie Shulman, who was Patty Mayonnaise, and a number of the people involved in Doug, they all admitted in the book and they all know that the Disney version was quite different. I think you can even see the difference between Disney and Nickelodeon in the Disney version of Doug and the Nickelodeon version of Doug very clearly. You can story and animation wise. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it's even in the way it looks. It's just not as because there was it wasn't as it wasn't as you know well crafted and and you know that was what was so amazing about Doug and what Jim and his team were doing was again much like with Ryan and Stimpy, it really walked the line between looking like it was almost hand drawn by you know Doug himself, if you will, but it still was so elaborate and baroque in all of the you know the little peripheral uh, decorations in the house and you know. 
uh, Bluffington mm-hmm. itself, and there was so much going on in the background, and yet it looked like it is almost something that was drawn by an 11-and-a-half-year-old who was very, very talented. And they walked that line so well. That's what made it so amazing. It's like, you know, the way that South Park has kind of come to look now, where you know, it looks sort of crappy, but it also looks kind of really good at the same time. <laughs> to walk yeah, that line paper. is really amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's what, and on the Disney version, it really just kind of looked, you know, a little bit more like flash animation. And, and Jim himself admits that he wasn't as involved in the Disney version as he was in the Nickelodeon version. Mm-hmm. Um, and that too, I think is why the creator driven animation qualifier at Nickelodeon was so important because man, the creators were involved in everything. I mean, DJ McHale, over at Are You Afraid of the Dark, if he didn't write every single script for that show, he was involved very directly in every single one. And, uh, you know, and, and that's that's true very much of the creators of a lot of the other shows. Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi over at Pete and Pete and uh, Steve, Steve uh, Slavkin over at Sleep Your Shorts. Um, you know, they were so intricately involved in every single episode of the show. Um, over at Rugrats, it was mainly Paul Germain because Gabor was busy with Duckman and Simpsons and other things and Arlene was Arlene, uh, we'll leave it at that, but Paul Germain, who was one of the creators of the show and was really running it, I mean, he was so, you know, intensely involved in every single episode and every single aspect. He was directing the actors and the voice, you know, the, the voice sessions, and, you know, he was working with the writers on the scripts and, you know, working with the the uh, animators and the artists and the way it would look, and, you know, it was really, it was that was very, very important. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I have only two more questions for you. Okay. All right. What is your favorite Nicktoon? Ren Simpy. <laughs> I'm more of an Ah Real Monsters person. You know, Ah Real Monsters was okay. I actually, I just recently started um, watching uh, Duckman again for the first time since I was too young to know what it was. And uh, I've had such a blast watching Duckman. I, I recommend it to any of your listeners who uh, maybe haven't watched it again or haven't watched it at all. It is, it's really intelligent. It's really well done. The character development is fantastic. The animation is extremely unique. Sometimes it's a little bit crappy, but for the most part, it looks quite good. It's like it's almost like a latter day Ralph Bakshi, if you will. And um, you know, I just I've loved watching. I, I just have been kind of marathoning it on DVDs from the library. And uh, that's right, I go to the library and get DVDs, but you know, it's free. <laughs> so um, so Duckman's been great. Yeah, but aside from that, you know, I've never been that big a fan of some of the other Gabor or Shupo classy cartoons. I think that their animation is fantastic. I've also been rewatching In Living Color, which, by the way, doesn't hold up. In Living Color is actually kind of crappy. I watched it with a couple of friends right now. We were all kind of looking at each other like, oh, this sort of sucks. Um, but, the, you know, uh, Classic Shupo did the animation. The title sequence is still amazing. I mean, that's almost what I'm wa- I'm watching it just for the title sequences now and the, the animation sequences. Um, so, but yeah, I never really got into all real monsters as a kid. Um, and, uh, the wild thornberries, uh, not really. Um, and some of the latter, uh, years of Rugrats and the movies for me, it was really Rugrats itself. Even I was always kind of a little on the fence about even as a kid, um, and Duckman. Uh, and then of course the early Simpsons. So otherwise I'm not the biggest classy Shupo fan. I think Gabor is awesome and I love his artwork for other stuff. And he's done, you know, album covers and things like that. And he was really nice on the phone. It was actually really cool talking to him because I, you know, he's, he's done so many big things with so many big people and musicians and all these things. Gabor Shupo has. Um, but, um, yeah, not the biggest Ariel Monsters fan. <laughs> Something about it was always just a little bit, I didn't even really like the voices that much. Yeah, I would watch it when it was on. But it wasn't really my thing. 
To each their own. Indeed. What was the uh, second question? <laughs> Do you, Mr. Clickstein, or is it Clickstein? It's it's Steen, but even after I tell you it's Steen, you'll still call me Stein as everyone does, but that's okay. It doesn't really matter. It's a fake name that Ellis Island gave us when we came over years back. Ah, uh, I know how that feels. But anyway, Mr. Clickstein, yeah. do you have anything to declare? That uh, I declare this uh, episode of your show uh, officially over and... Uh, <laughs> Midnight Society, uh, uh, and uh, you know, I thought this was a cartoon uh, show. You put me on the spot with your fate of the day. Um, yeah, no, I I declare it officially over. So, and oh, you know, this is actually I just have to throw it in there because it's a good it's a good moment to uh, to, to plug this. Uh, Ross Hall, who was Gary on Are You Afraid of the Dark, just did a little short documentary that's fantastic that everyone should go online and look up. You can see it on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Nick oral history, um, or just, you know, look up Gary or, or Ross Hole or Are You Afraid of the Dark? You'll see it. It's really funny. It's well done. It, it shows his realizing that people are still watching Are You Afraid of the Dark? And, um, you know, I, I really suggest that everyone check it out. And Ross has been fantastic and been working with us on continuing to promote the book and, and that kind of thing. So please check out his short documentary. He just finished it. Um, and you can find out more information on that at also at uh, that that guy for that one show. So check it out. Awesome, I will. Well, thank you so much, Matt. This is yeah, awesome. Thank you. Looney Tunes, you'll find them all on Nick. Lots of stuff, enough to make you sick. Psycho, for when your mind goes, for when you've had enough of doing grown-up stuff. So when your moody parents make a goonie, positively loony, don't wait for a full moony. Tune, tune, goony, moody, loony, goony, moody, loony, tune, For those of you who don't know, the Tune and Talk podcast is brought to you by Fanboy Nation, your number one source for all things related to the fandom. And now, let's have a word from our sponsor. Excelsior in Paris Rex. Live long and prosper. Up, up, and away. Now that's my personal favorite. Fanboy Nation is go. Welcome to Fanboy Nation magazine, the home of all things fanboy and fangirl. Not just the same stuff you can get anywhere else. Only at Fanboy Nation will we go beyond the generic questions of, so what's your favorite pencil? What kind of strings do you use? And how did it feel when you put on X costume? We give you insight into the lives of the artists, producers, the movers, the shakers, the indies, up-and-comers, the bigwigs, and most importantly, the little guys. If you haven't gotten yourself over to fanboynation.com, you need to do it today. Welcome to the bottom of the Tune In Talk podcast, and wasn't that a great bumper from Fanboy Nation? Well... I just want to extend my thanks to Matthew Clickstein again for coming onto the show. And if you need a great read, I suggest you check out Slimed, an oral history of the golden age of Nickelodeon. I have included a link to that in the show notes, as well as Nickelodeon Nation, another book that Matt suggested we all read. You will be able to find the show notes in one of two places. One is at www.tuneintalk.com, and the other is at 
fanboynation.com where you can click on the link to podcast and then tune in talk and the most recent episode is always at the top. You know, all this nostalgic talk has made me really miss the old shows on Nickelodeon, the Disney Afternoon, uh, even Cartoon Network. And, you know, for those of the listeners who are born after 2000, you might not be aware of it, but once upon a time, there used to be something called Saturday Morning Cartoons, and that was just... a I don't know, anywhere from a three to eight hour block of cartoons in the morning, depending on how early you got up. And while those things, we cannot repeat them at all, we can relive them through the magic and wonder of the internet and Netflix, as well as YouTube. And if you're like me, you might have an old VHS laying around somewhere, though mine mostly pertain to the Muppets. If you are interested in connecting with me, your host, Whitney Grace, you can find me at Story Sequence or at Tune and Talk on Twitter. Twitter is the main social network I am on, but I'm moving my way to Facebook and the Tune and Talk Facebook page. Again, if you are interested in supporting the show, please leave us a review on Stitcher or iTunes. Those links are available on either Fanboy Nation or at TuneInTalk.com. I would love the opportunity to connect with any listeners on the show. So if you don't feel like talking with me on social media, please drop me a line at the email address for the show, which is at TuneInTalk at gmail.com. Very simple to remember. For all news related to animation, I suggest you check out Fanboy Nation, therotoscopers.com, as well as animatedviews.com. All three are excellent sites and ones I have personally worked with over the years. Remember how last episode I mentioned I would be posting some of my own writings and such in the news section? Well, I also said that at the beginning of the show, too. Um, Recently, I posted one of my first interviews ever, and it was with Miss Margaret Carey. For those of you who do not know your Disney history, Margaret Carey was the live-action model for Tinkerbell from the original 1953 Disney movie, Peter Pan. Often it is credited that Marilyn Monroe was the model for Tinkerbell, but no, 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 that is wrong. Miss Carrie told me herself that she was the model, and that is a mistake that she has fought for years to deal with. But it's a great interview. Miss Carrie was and is a dear, dear woman and very hilarious, as well as just her career in history is amazing. Check on that interview at www.tuneintalk.com and leave me some comments about it. And we have come to the bottom of the show, and I must thank all of you listeners for tuning in to the Tune and Talk podcast. If you didn't quite catch that, that is a very clever pun thought of by my editor. So, if you will excuse me, I am so brimming to the top with nostalgia for the golden age of Nickelodeon that I'm going to spend the next few hours on YouTube just watching my old favorite shows, one of which is, ah, real monsters. 
So have a great day, and I'll catch you in episode seven. Aren't you glad? You watching? You watching? You watching, Nick? Aren't you glad? You watching? You watching? You watching, Nick?